Well, before we look um, at the text uh, more specifically, I, I just wanted to um, exclaim, uh, exclaim, explain even, a couple of things. Um, and forgive me if these things are obvious, but I just felt it would help in the kind of context of, of what we're looking at this morning to just explain a couple of things that might otherwise be uh, taken for granted or maybe missed. The first thing is this. This, this whole letter, because the Bible is made up of, of, of different books and letters that all tell something of the history of God's desire for the world. This letter was written by James and uh, it was written to imperfect people. People that declared themselves to be Christians but nonetheless were by no means perfect. And it's important that we recognise that. Because actually, they were very human, just like me, just like you. James was writing to people like us. Whatever our place is in, in our journey of faith, he was writing to imperfect people. Many here today may well call themselves Christians, people who follow Jesus. And you're not perfect, sorry to say. (laughs) I am not perfect. You see, it's our natural inclination to put ourselves in the driving seat. It's our natural inclination to say, me first, God somewhere, possibly, on the periphery, or maybe not at all. And as soon as we take that perspective, we become guilty of what is unfashionably called sin. Because at the heart of sin is basically putting myself in a more important place than God. Putting myself at the helm of of running my life and putting God somewhere else. And the second thing, I guess, is related to to what I've just said and and it's worth explaining what what I mean by by Christian, what I mean by faith this morning. Because this, this whole book is about faith being worked out in a life lived that is pleasing to God and that could seem like a very pious thing but it's actually a really quite natural thing see God created us as the pinnacle of his creation which is amazing when you look outside here and you see the beauty of this place and the places around here in fact anywhere you go in the world And God created us at the pinnacle of all that. When you look at little Hugo, he is amazing. We are amazing. And God made us. And he made us for his delight and his pleasure. He gave us the freedom to choose to walk with him. But if, as we so often do, if we choose our way as better and we reject God, then we sin. 
It's a little bit like when we, when we use a gadget for a purpose that it's not designed for. You use a screwdriver to open a tin of paint and then you bend the end of it because it was so stuck from the last time you used the, the paint that you bend the screwdriver. That's a bit like us not living as God intended us to live. We, we use our, our lives for the, impur- the purpose it wasn't intended for. And when we do that, we end up broken. Our relationship with God is broken. But here's the amazing thing. God was never content for us to be broken. He was never content for us to be left on on some kind of scrap heap of stuff that didn't quite meet his standards. He wants the best for us. He wants us to reach the potential that we have as he made us. And we're not just talking about something in eternity, in heaven, which is a wonderful thing, but we're talking about now. God wants us to realise potential now. And so he sent Jesus into the world. A man who was God. He took that initiative and sent Jesus that he might resolve the difficulty that we have, which is sin gets in the way of us and God. And Jesus, by dying on the cross, took upon himself the sin of the world. But here's the wonderful thing. He didn't just die, but he rose again. He conquered sin and death. Made it possible for us, faulty human beings, to relate to our Heavenly Father who made us amazing, like Hugo. And he asks us to trust him. He asks us to acknowledge that we are made in God's image. To acknowledge that we need in our lives a relationship with the manufacturer. And he needs us to acknowledge that we have this inclination to ignore him and to sin. And then we need to ask Jesus to forgive us for our sin and choose to follow him. And that is a journey of faith. And that is the faith that James is trying to explore in this letter to say that actually, as you live out this journey of faith, so your lives will meet the potential that God has given us. So faith is not a crutch. It's not something that we inherited, that we were born into, that we were somehow born a Christian. It's not something that's out of date. But it's real. It's vital. It's at the heart of the life we were created for. And that's the stuff that James was writing about as he writes this letter. And here in chapter 3, he's he's talking about wisdom. Wisdom was something that was prized 
perhaps more than we prize wisdom today. In the time that James was writing, wisdom was a a prized thing. And here he kind of highlights two different kinds of wisdom. If we look in the passage, at the very beginning of the passage, verse 13, and then verses 17 and 18, there's one kind of wisdom that's described, and then in between there's a sandwich filling. Verses 14 to 16, there's another kind of wisdom that's described. And I'd love us just to unpack those two kinds of wisdom for just a few moments this morning. Let's look at at one kind, which is in verses 14 to 16, where it says, If you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil, kind of builds in intensity, earthly, kind of all rightish, I think, unspiritual, I think he's kind of having a go here, of the devil, we're very clear, this is not good. For where you have selfish, envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. See, earthly wisdom that he describes here is born of our own kind of human understanding. Our own human ingenuity. Which seems okay. Except that God is left out of the picture. If our human understanding is under God's direction, that is brilliant. But if it's our own stuff, then it's destined for failure. Let me tell you a little story about a lady called Erythea. Okay, nice name, Erythea. Now this lady, Erythea, she was uh, coming to adulthood and her mother taught her to weave and to spin, to spin yarn and to weave cloth. Lovely kind of scene of, of domestic kind of creativity going on. Mum teaches daughter to, to spin and to weave. And eventually she gets the hang of it. She starts making cloth and thinks, cool, that's all right. Then bit by bit she gets good enough at it that one or two people around her say, would you make me um, a kind of a scarf thing, please? And Erythea says, well, all right then. And she's thrilled to bits when, when she makes her first scarf. Somebody gives her a few coins to say, thank you, well done. And she soon realises, as she grows a little bit older, that she can make a living spinning and weaving. And so that's what she does. She spends her days spinning and weaving cloth and is actually really good at it. And then she thinks, actually, I could make a bit of a business out of this. And so she does. She, she expands what she's doing. She realises that there's a demand for the kind of cloth that she can make. And so she expands. And guess what? She even asks her mum to come and work for her. And as this business kind of develops, it, it really depends on the fact that, that the customer is, is really important. It depends on on just giving that personal touch. 
maybe doing just that little bit more than, than you'd kind of quoted for, but that's okay because I want it to be right. I want you to be pleased. And so the business grew and grew to the point where she was no longer involved in the spinning and weaving. She spent all her time kind of doing the admin and the managing and and going out for clients. and, And she began to see that there was a bit more pressure on her. And so she needed to get the targets up. She needed to get the efficiency up. She had to let her mum go because actually she was a bit slow. And she was holding the business back. So she sacks her mum. And the business grows. And grows. She begins to turn down the small jobs. Because there's not enough profit in those. And one day her mum looks at her and says, I wonder if only Erythea would remember her humble beginnings. Why am I telling you that story? Well, Erythea is a Greek word. And it's, it's used in this passage two times. In verse 14 and in verse 17. And that Greek word had its, had its origin to mean spinning work done for payment. If you heard Erythea, that's what it meant when it, when it was first coined. But like language does, it kind of develops over time. And it began to take on a meaning of kind of wanting more. Actually wanting more for me. And beginning to ask the question, what's in it for me? And it became associated, strangely, with political power. It went from a simple word meaning a job well done for a fair wage to meaning selfish ambition. And so when James uses this word selfish ambition here, it's a word that has kind of lost its humble beginnings. It's been tainted and has morphed into a word that is really quite unpleasant and it kind of highlights something of earthly wisdom and when it's used in in, in scripture it always refers to an attitude that says not what can I put in actually what can I get out selfish ambition and you see all too often our humanity when it's lived without God, taints what would otherwise be good. I read on the BBC website yesterday, I was just looking through some bits and pieces, and I saw on the BBC website, the Equalities Minister, Lynn Featherstone, she was saying um, that it's the government's duty to reflect society and to shape policy according to what society looks like. She was talking in response to to the long tradition of Christian teaching around sexuality. But what she was really saying is that society's trends 
should shape government's policy. What's going on in society is what we need to be led by. And on one level, that kind of sounds reasonable, that we kind of listen and we try to to develop our governance by hearing what's going on. But on another level, that's bonkers. Excuse my language. But that's mad! It's basically the tail wagging the dog. It's saying, well, I tell you what, if it goes on this way, then we better make a law to help that. Oh, we better do a little bit of that. Oh, we better do... And it's kind of suddenly lost all kind of mooring. And so we put human reasoning in place without God's perspective and it becomes something that is directionless. It's kind of hard to know where it's going to end up. And I respect what what Lynn Featherstone is trying to say. But it shows how human understanding without God can lead us to a place of lostness. So what's the alternative to earthly wisdom? Well, it's in the passage. Verse 13, a wisdom characterised by a good life. That sounds all right. Deeds done in humility. That sounds fine too. Well, maybe you might be thinking, yeah, that's all right for others, but maybe not for me. Wisdom, verse 17, that is pure, that's characterised by being peace-loving, considerate, full of mercy, submissive, with good fruit, impartial and sincere. Well, those are admirable qualities. But maybe they sound a bit out of reach. For me, Mr. Ordinary. Or maybe they seem a bit weak. Submissive. Hello. Pure. Not sure about that. But actually, when you think about it, those qualities are far, far from weak. They actually require incredible courage. Because they're essentially different approaches to life. They're essentially opposite to what's described as earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. It's the wisdom that's described as the wisdom in, in, in 14 to 16 are described. But you know, they're not unattainable. See, James, although he sometimes sounds a bit grumpy in this letter, he does tell us something very early on about wisdom. In the first chapter, in verse 5, just a page or so back in your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 5, he says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. 
See, God will give the kind of wisdom that he speaks of in chapter 3, if we ask him. If we incline ourselves towards God's heart for humanity, God's heart for us to live and thrive and flourish, even in the midst of desperate circumstances. I'm not saying that following God's heart means that, that life is rosy, that nothing difficult happens because by goodness, difficult stuff happens and there's plenty of people here that know that. But following God's heart will allow you to stand in the midst of difficult circumstances. See, if we walk in God's wisdom, it enables us to live by the manufacturer's instructions. Faith in Jesus requires an active engagement, James is saying. And God will help us as we submit ourselves to him. He'll bring these qualities out if we'll let him. It's not an easy road, but it's definitely the road to choose. James sees it as something that we struggle with we must be encouraged that God has not given up on us. Even though I sometimes reckon if, if James had his way, he'd have given up on some people a long while ago. But God has not given up on any of us. He wants us to turn to him. Even though we mess up. He wants us to know the wisdom that's characterised by a good life, that's done in humility, which is a strength to not be swayed either by fear or by anger, but actually to stand and to hold firm. That's what God wants us to do. And that is a wise choice. We're going to come to communion in just a moment. And I'll explain a little bit of how that works. But actually in communion there's an opportunity to turn. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousand and first time, million and first time, to Jesus. Ask his help. Ask his guidance. Ask his strength that we might be men and women who display the goodness and the reality of God, who work it out, who come back when we mess up, and who seek God's heart.